It's Monday, April 29th. I'm Oscar Ramirez in Los Angeles, and this is The Daily Dive. Another hate crime committed in a place of worship as congregants were celebrating the last day of Passover in a Poe synagogue. A 19-year-old man open-fired killing one and injuring three others. In a manifesto posted online, the shooter said he was inspired by recent shootings in Pittsburgh and New Zealand. My producer Miranda joins us for how events unfolded and how these attacks continue to be accelerated by online platforms. Next, Ginger Gibson, political reporter for Reuters, joins us to break down all the news from the weekend. Joe Biden started off strong, raising $6.3 million in the first 24 hours of his campaign. The economy continues to be strong with a 3.2% GDP growth rate, giving a lift to the president and more worries for Democrats. And Ginger also gives us the lowdown from the White House Correspondents' Dinner. Finally, a recent uptick in sightings of UFOs has prompted the Navy to draft formal procedures to document the encounters that military personnel were experiencing. Brian Bender, national security reporter for Politico, joins us for more on UFOs, or as the military calls them now, unexplained aerial phenomena. It's news without the noise. Let's dive in. Got it. all the kids safe to a neighbor's house, ran back up, got to the congregations shouting as loud as I could, get out, get out, get out. People need to be aware that anti-Semitism is a reality. It's happening now just like it happened prior to the Holocaust. Joining me now is my producer, Miranda. Once again, we have tragedy that struck in the form of a hate crime on Saturday. It was the last day of Passover at a Poway synagogue in the San Diego area in California when a 19-year-old man named John Ernest stepped into the synagogue and started firing with a semi-automatic rifle. This guy has this sick inspiration. He posted a manifesto, which a lot of other people have done recently. He said he was specifically inspired by the Australian white nationalists who killed 50 people in the attacks on mosques in Christchurch, New Zealand. He was also inspired by the synagogue shootings in Pittsburgh. Miranda, tell us how the day unfolded. Well, it's not clear exactly how it got started. Some are reporting that the gunman was yelling Jews were ruining the world before opening fire, but he opened fire. He shot and killed a 60-year-old woman. He wounded the rabbi. He also wounded a 34-year-old man and an eight-year-old girl. That 34-year-old man was getting, he got shot in the leg after he was helping hide children and the eight-year-old girl received shrapnel in the face. The rabbi was shot in the hand and the woman who passed, her name is Lori Kay. She was a member of the synagogue and she died trying to protect the rabbi. She jumped in front of the bullets to save his life. Her husband was there. He's a physician. He was helping people as well. I think he was about to administer some CPR to some people. And they said, come over here. We need some more help. And right when he was going to help this one particular person, he realized that was his wife. And then he fainted after that. It's just horrible horrible to hear that. John Ernest was then taken into custody a few blocks away from the synagogue after the shooting. He actually fled the scene after an off-duty border patrol agent who was working as a security guard shot him. There were at least 100 people inside that synagogue, Oscar, when the shots fired. So they're yeah. saying that this border patrol agent likely prevented this from being a way bigger casualty. They also said that the gun that he was using jammed or malfunctioned or right. something. So maybe that's why he ran away. The border patrol agent Fired at him, didn't hit him, but hit his car. Then he drove away and he called 911 on himself and gave up almost immediately. The suspect actually called into the California Highway Patrol to report that he was involved in the shooting. He gave his location. He gave cross streets. 
and he pulled over his car. He exited the the vehicle. They said that he jumped out of the car with his hands up and he was immediately taken into custody by the San Diego police. And they said that there was no incident. He didn't put up a fight. He didn't try to shoot at cops. One of the officers said that the rifle was clearly very visibly sitting right on his front passenger seat. This guy had a manifesto that he posted online to 8chan, one of these dark corners of the internet. And he specifically called out these examples and a couple others as being his inspiration for wanting to do it. Something clicked in his head when the New Zealand shooter went and live streamed the whole thing. It clicked in his head that he had to take action. He had a very similar website to the New Zealand Christchurch shooter where he had a Q&A section, basically like an interview for himself in advance. And one of the things was, you know, hey, when did you start planning this attack? And he wrote, four weeks ago, I decided that I was doing this. Four weeks later, I did it. I remember a specific moment in time after Brenton Tarrant's sacrifice. He calls it a sacrifice. That something just clicked in my mind. If I won't defend my race, how can I expect others to do the same? It was one week after that New Zealand shooting that he set fire to a mosque in the Escondido area. He said, I scorched a mosque in in Escondido. He talks about how it was unfortunate that they were able to put the fire out so quickly. Mm -hmm. That happened a week after Christchurch, New Zealand. Shortly after that, he decided he was going to do that. And four weeks later, it happened. He's a 19-year-old guy. He wrote many times in his manifesto about how he had his whole life ahead of him. Even talking about his family, they would say things like, why would you be doing this? He goes into detail about how he didn't inherit any of these beliefs from his parents, no influence from his family, and that they would be furious with him asking, why would you throw your life away? You risked everything because you're going to nursing school. You can have a great career and have a wonderful family. And he goes as far as to explain he's not mentally ill. He writes in his manifesto, I've seen plenty of mentally ill patients. It's heartbreaking. I know what it looks like. No, I do not have mental illness. He seems to be someone who's very self-aware of why he's doing this. He said, I'm just a normal dude who wanted to have a family, help and heal people and play piano. We talk a lot about social media and these dark corners of the Internet where people go. And, you know, he was on these message boards. He said that he had only been lurking his words on these message boards for a year and a half. And that's what's so crazy, so confusing is that that's how quickly it took for all this hate and stuff on these message boards to warp his mind even mentioned, I didn't get this from my family, but I had to take a stand and and sacrifice for my race and things like that. You hear that same message repeated when you hear about people who are American and they travel to ISIS and they get radicalized online in a very short amount of time. They find these impressionable people and give them a reason to hate other people. As far as ideology, he doesn't claim to be motivated by any political beliefs. This is purely like a white nationalism thing in his Q&A section, one of the first questions he answered was whether he's a Trump supporter or not. And he wrote, you mean that Zionist, Jew-loving, anti-white traitor? Don't make me laugh. So this isn't a political thing. This isn't a make America great again thing. He's in a league of his own, this guy. It's just scary to think that a guy can do something in New Zealand and it inspires this guy to act. And then he did it so quickly. It's it's terrifying, really. He's been charged with one count of first degree murder, three counts of first degree attempted murder. His first court appearance is going to be on May 1st. So we'll have more details then. Thank you, Miranda. Thank you, Oscar. It's about moving to the future. It's not about recreating what we did. It's about taking the same decency and the philosophy that we have, the political philosophy, and taking it into the future. There's so much we can do. Joining us now is Ginger Gibson 
political reporter for Reuters. Big news last week, Joe Biden was the, I think he's the 20th person that jumped into the race for president on the Democratic side. We were all waiting to see what his big fundraising numbers were going to be. He even mentioned it in a conference call with donors and supporters saying, hey, they're going to judge us on how much money we're going to make in the first 24 hours, in the first week. How did Joe Biden do? He exceeded expectations in his first day fundraising. He beat the rest of the Democratic field in that 24-hour fundraising contest. He raised $6.3 million in his first day in the race. That compares to the 6.1 that Beto O'Rourke raised and the 5.9 that Bernie Sanders raised. So he did better than any other Democrat who's announced. And while we expect Steve Bullock to be the last candidate to enter, I would be very surprised if the Montana governor betters the $6.3 million number. <laughs> right. So looks like Biden's going to take that trophy for this field. Over 96,000 people contributed in that first day and 65,000 of those were donations from people who were not on his email list of supporters. You know what I did not know is that to qualify for the first debate in June, the candidates need to receive donations from 65,000 different donors. That's That's a pretty crazy number, but obviously he reached that pretty easily campaign said reached that in the first 12 hours of his candidacy. So able to very quickly meet that threshold. Some lesser known candidates like Andrew Yang have also met that threshold. All of the well-known candidates have as well. We suspect that the lesser known sort of house members like Eric Swalwell, Tim Ryan, Seth Moulton should be able to clear that hurdle, but they may be struggling on the first debate to get to 65,000 donors. It is a lot of people you have to convince to give you some money for that qualification. The campaign also said that 97% of online donations were below $200. And that's like an important mark on the Democratic side because everybody's not taking big pack money or lobbyist money. So these small online donations are really important for the Democratic Party. And I think it's viewed as sort of a measure of your support, whether or not you can get it. The criticism of Biden that he was going to have to rely on sort of big money checks, you know, you can accept checks that are $2,800 from an individual donor that he went on Thursday after launching his campaign and went to a, a fundraiser at a Comcast executive's home in Philadelphia. We suspect he's fundraising through the weekend. So that that criticism, this was an attempt by their campaign to say, look, you're wrong. We can get a lot of money from a lot of people who are grassroots, who are normal, who are supporting this candidacy. It's not just people who can write $2,800 checks. Let's move on a little bit to the economy. The GDP grew at 3.2% in the first quarter. It exceeded economist projections. Everybody was saying, oh, the economy is going to be going down. They thought the government shutdown was going to negatively affect things. But everything turned out pretty good. Uh, It's a win for the president anytime the economy is doing well. How are the Democrats going to be countering that? Because when Joe Biden launched, you know, he made it about the soul of the nation and, and we have to get Donald Trump out of there. But It's going to be really hard when the Democrats don't have a big, cohesive economic plan to fight some of the good news that's coming out of the economy. The economy is doing very well, and people will presume that voters enjoying the the positive economy will reward Trump with re-election. That is what the Republicans are banking on and the Democrats are terrified of. Trump now likes to quote Democratic strategist James Carville, who said many years ago, it's the economy stupid in explaining Bill Clinton's re-election. But I think that if this election 
election, if Donald Trump doesn't win, it's going to come down to it's not the economy, stupid. You know, it's all of the other things. And that's what Democrats are hoping to do to tell people like, all right, fine, the economy is great, but that guy's got other problems and it's not tenable going forward. And Trump and the Republicans are going to try to tell folks like, you want these things to stay? Keep us. And if you don't want them to stay, (laughs) vote for the other guy. The last thing I wanted to talk about, uh, there was two big events happening at the same time. The president was in Green Bay, Wisconsin, holding a rally. And at the same time, the White House Correspondents Dinner was also happening. You had a chance to go to the dinner. How did it all turn out? It was a lot of fun. I think that folks had expectations that they had abandoned using a comedian as the after dinner program, that that was going to make it boring, that we had a historian coming, that he was going to give us a history lecture. It was quite funny. And I think that the reporters, particularly in the room, really enjoyed sort of the little bit of a pep talk to go out and, and do journalism, even in the face of an administration and a president that is overwhelmingly critical and says things about the media that frankly aren't true. And we still have to keep doing our job. So it was pretty good. And on the other side, the president was at his rally, obviously railing against the media, as he tends to do, just kind of going on uh, about the economy, attacking some of the Democratic rivals that are uh, running for president, par for the course for a, a Trump rally, I think. It was. And, you know, it was in, in two different worlds. One can imagine what it would have been like if Trump had come to the White House Correspondents Dinner and given a speech more like the one he gave in Wisconsin. It probably would not have been received well. <laughs> he was quite aggressive in, in complaining about the press in that speech. So it was two different worlds. And a reminder that Trump re-election train has left the station and the re-election rallies are happening and they're going to keep happening. So we're going to see more of those kind of things going forward. Ginger Gibson, political reporter for Reuters. Thank you very much for joining us. Thanks for having me. This was driven largely by a number of cases in recent years where aircraft carriers out at sea have reported aircraft they can't identify, that don't have markings, that operate in ways that seem highly advanced. Joining us now is Brian Bender, national security reporter for Politico. We're going to be talking about a topic that everybody loves, UFOs. The Navy is drafting new guidelines for reporting UFOs. There was a lot of pilots reporting sightings of UFOs or not reporting them because they were afraid that they would just be dismissed or be made fun of. It would negatively impact their careers if they were speaking up about these things. So the Navy is drafting new guidelines now for pilots and other personnel to report these encounters with unidentified aircraft. We all know them as unidentified flying objects, UFOs, but the military now calls them unexplained aerial phenomena. Tell us a little bit more about this. The military doesn't do anything unless there's a standard operating procedure for how to do it. Something written down somewhere that lays out, here's how you do this. And in this case, they're going to lay out some new guidelines, procedures to follow if Navy pilots or other sailors or personnel see these unexplained or unidentified aircraft. And this was driven largely by a number of cases in recent years where aircraft carriers out at sea have reported aircraft they can't identify, that don't have markings, that operate in ways that seem highly advanced and like nothing we we have in our inventory. And as as far as they know, nothing the Russians or the Chinese have either. Obviously, this has piqued the interest of people inside the military, outside the military. It's also generated a lot of interest in Congress. From what I understand and have been told, this directive that the Navy is putting together is in part at the urging of some members of Congress who want the military to take a much more formal 
formal approach in gathering these reports and analyzing them in some more central place so that maybe they can be explained. And you touched on this. I think there is a culture in the military, and it's quite frankly in society at large, where oftentimes you're seen as kind of kooky if you say you saw a UFO. And I think that's one of the things this is trying to get at as well, to destigmatize it so that when a Navy pilot flying off an aircraft carrier comes back to the ship, gets out of his airplane, goes back to the ready room, he feels more free to talk about something that he might have seen that he couldn't quite explain. That's an important distinction because it's not your local crazy uh, alien enthusiast in some small town or something. These are military pilots, people on aircraft carriers. They're familiar with the most advanced aircrafts that they're flying themselves even. So if they're reporting this stuff and they're confused about that, it's important to take note of it because you don't know if it could be adversarial aircraft that just might be more advanced than ours. And it's important to take the feedback from those people who know it best. These aircraft had Russian markings on them or Chinese markings. The Pentagon would be running around with like a chicken without a head, trying to figure out how did the Chinese figure out how to develop an aircraft that goes from 80,000 feet to the surface of the ocean in a couple of seconds without exploding. If we tried to do that, we would crash. But because there are no markings or they're not clearly marked, people look at it and say, well, I don't know what that is, so I don't know what to do about that. And I think there's a growing concern on national security grounds because these reports that have been coming in haphazardly in the last couple of years seems to demonstrate that there are aircraft out there that can do things that effectively render defenseless a lot of our most high-tech military defenses. An aircraft carrier, when it travels out in the ocean, basically got a mini air force on board. It's surrounded by other warships that protect it, cruisers, destroyers with radars and missiles and all kinds of stuff. And according to these reports, these unidentified aircraft are flying in and out of this perimeter totally unfettered. In other words, all of this defense that we've set up around the aircraft carrier, which is a $4 billion weapon system, are pretty much not effective. If these guys are out in the field and getting outmaneuvered by these things, that's kind of scary. You got to look into it. It's not that the Pentagon has not focused on this at all. There was an office inside the Defense Intelligence Agency, and it's not clear what form that office now takes. But we do know from some declassified information for seven or eight years in the early to mid 2000s, the Pentagon was looking at this, but it was a very relatively small amount of money. I mean, $25 million is a lot for you and me, but in the Pentagon, that's like the coins in the couch. I mean, (laughs) not much at all. And they did do a bunch of studies to try and explain some of what they were seeing technologically. In other words, how could an aircraft do these things if these pilots are reporting. The Nimitz aircraft carrier was off the coast of California doing some trials and training exercises. And over the course of several days, there were multiple reports like these. The Pentagon even released some of the video that was captured by some of these pilots and some of these ship crews out in the Pacific. But I'm told there are much more recent cases of this. As recently as 2015, 2016. And the big question is now, as if with these new guidelines, if we'll hear about these reports anymore or if they'll just kind of continue to be you know, top secret and whatnot. My sense is that the military's probably been gathering a whole lot more on this than we know about. We just know a little bit that has sort of been dribbling out. Certainly a sense that they're taking it more and more seriously. But, you know, we now know that there's going to be a paper trail. So right, if nothing exactly. else, reporters can put in Freedom of Information Act requests at some point to try and get access to these. You know, how many of these reports are coming in? 
Where are they? Who's making these reports? And, you know, I think the congressional interest in this, and there's been a bunch of briefings for members of Congress, that will allow some of this to dribble out publicly as well. Brian Bender, national security reporter for Politico. Thank you very much for joining us. Thanks for having me. That's it for today. Join us on social media at Daily Dive Pod on Twitter and Daily Dive Podcast on Facebook. Leave us a comment, give us a rating, and tell us the stories that you're interested in. Follow us on iHeartRadio or subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. The Daily Dive is produced by Miranda Moreno and engineered by Tony Sorrentino. I'm Oscar Ramirez, and this is your Daily Dive.